We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> you talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Episode 74 of the Al Galdi Podcast. It is Tuesday, June 1st, 2021. Yes, a new month is upon us. What's the saying for June? Is there a saying for June? March comes in like a lion, goes out like a lamb. April showers, bring May flowers. What's the saying for June? Anything? June deserves a saying. June is one of the best months of the year. Although you wouldn't have known that June was coming given the weather for the majority of our Memorial Day weekend. Worst Memorial Day weekend ever in the D.C. area in terms of weather. I am officially declaring that it was brutal on Saturday and Sunday. Monday was better, that is true, but Saturday and Sunday felt like November. We went to the park on Sunday morning. I was wearing warm-up pants, a Maryland hoodie, and a winter coat. It was brutal. It felt like a Sunday late in the NFL season. I was thinking we had Washington at Dallas later in the day. Well, hopefully the cold is behind us. Hopefully you had a nice Memorial Day weekend. I did. No installment of the podcast on Monday, so we must make up for that on this Tuesday show. And make up we shall, because my friends, the Wizards, they are alive. The damn Washington Wizards. Yes, Stephen A., you can't kill the Wizards. A win. Yes, a win over the Philadelphia 76ers 
at Capital One Arena on Monday night to avoid a four-game sweep in the first round of the NBA playoffs. Yes, Joel Embiid getting injured had a lot to do with the win, but especially given the awful performance by the Wizards on Saturday night at Capital One Arena in Game 3, I didn't know what to expect on Monday night. The Embiid injury changed everything. The Wizards took advantage, and if, and I stress if, Embiid is going to be out or even compromised for a while here, maybe... Just maybe, just maybe, we have ourselves a series. We shall see. This week is week two of OTA practices for the Washington football team. The second of just two weeks of OTA practices for Washington this offseason. The mandatory minicamp will be next week. Chase Young and Montez Sweat were among the few Washington players who did not participate in week one of OTA practices. We'll see if that changes in this week too. But does it matter? that neither guy participated. After all, these practices are, wait for it, voluntary. Uh, I want to talk about this coming up. The Nationals, they are a mess. The Orioles, they're even worse. But of course, the Orioles essentially are trying to lose. They're tanking. The Nationals are trying to win, and yet they're not winning. I've got a lot to say about both teams. I'll talk Nats and those later in the show. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. You can tweet me, at Al Galdi. Email from Jerry Moore, who is a big Maryland men's lacrosse fan. He writes, Al, still another gut-wrenching loss in a championship game, 17-16 for my Terps. We've now lost 10 of our last 11 championship games, and poor Tillman, as in John Tillman, the head coach, has now lost five or six. Seems like this should all balance out sometime, but the fates seem to find a way to screw us over and over. Great team this year. Deserve to get to overtime. Great fourth quarter rally. One short ug. Gut-wrenching. Yes, it was gut-wrenching. If you're a Terps fan, anyway. If you're a fan of Wahoo then you're thrilled with what went down on Monday. But the three-seeded Maryland Terrapins losing to the four-seeded Virginia Cavaliers 17-16 in Connecticut. Terps were down 16-11 in the fourth quarter. Cut the deficit to 16-15, but ultimately lost 17-16. It is amazing. I mean, you don't have to be a lacrosse fan to appreciate this. Maryland, every year it feels like, is in the NCAA championship game, and every year it feels like loses in the NCAA championship game. Maryland now has played in the NCAA championship game 15 times. That's the third most all-time. Johns Hopkins is number one at 18. Syracuse is number two at 16. And like my man Jerry Road, the Terrapins have lost 10 of their last 11 NCAA championship games, 76, 79, 95, 97, 98, 2011, 2012, 2015, 2016, 2017, 2021. Terps won the championship in 2017, but otherwise, the other 10 times out of the 11 most recent times, all losses and a bunch clearly, as you just heard, in recent seasons, 2011, 2012, 2015, 2016, and then 2021. This guy, John Tillman, has done some job since he took over for the Terps prior to that 2011 season. Terps have played in six of the 10 NCAA championship games held since Tillman took over as Maryland head lacrosse coach. And yet the Terrapins have just one championship to show for it. Such is life. I got this tweet from James Rainey on Monday morning. He says, I haven't seen any tweets about the podcast this morning, and it's not ready for me to download. You okay? Or are you depressed with how bad the Wizards have played in the playoffs? We need proof of life at this point. Yes, James, I am alive. I am here. I am with you. Uh, I was enjoying uh, the long weekend 
as uh, that became a popular phrase over the last few days now, didn't it? But yes, I took the day off on Monday, all right? It was a Memorial Day, all right? So let me have a day off, please. But we're back at it here uh, on this Tuesday. But you mentioned the Wizards. Did you happen to see who was at the Wizards win over the 76ers at Capital One Arena on Monday night? Don Ron. Yes, Ron Rivera was in the house on Monday night. You know by now what Ron loves as much as anything, his position flex. Position flex. Exactly, Ron. Thank you. And along the same lines, one of the great supporters of this podcast, John Grandland of Real Broker, he is the originator of what we like to call commission flex. So if you need to sell your home and aren't sure to whom to turn, if you've been trying to sell your home and you're not satisfied with how things are going, even if you are just thinking about selling your home, contact my guy, John Grandland, aka John G. And understand, whereas Ron has his position flex, John Grandland has commission flex. Position flex. Yes, Ron, you have position flex. John G. has commission flex. Here's what commission flex is all about. Not every house requires the same amount of work or money spent marketing. So why should you pay the same fees? It doesn't make sense. It's never made sense. If your house is going to sell in six minutes, you shouldn't have to pay 6%. That would be ridiculous. Let John put a marketing plan together for you that will maximize your home's value and help you keep more of your hard-earned equity in your pocket. John has a menu of commission packages that you can choose from, including selling your home for free. Yes, you heard that right. For free, some conditions do apply. But interviewing John Grandlin is an absolute no-brainer. He can come by your house, give you a step-by-step plan on what to do to get top dollar, and maybe even more importantly, what not to do so you don't spend needlessly, and there is never any obligation to list or sell. You have nothing to lose by contacting John Grandlin. So do yourself a favor, give him a call. By the way, he'll sell your home guaranteed. That's right, guaranteed. He guarantees the sale of your home. Here's the phone number for John G. 703-537-6747. That's 703-537-6747. Make sure you tell him that Al Galdi sent you, or you can visit John Grandlin online at the following website, John G. Sellsforfree.com. I love that site. John G. Sellsforfree.com. Again, zero commission. Ask him about that. John Grandlin, nobody will do a better job of selling your home. And remember, he is the master of commission flex. Position flex. Yes, Ron. Just like position flex. All right. So our Wizards, they live at least for another game. So look, the history that the Wizards are battling still is daunting. Entering the 2021 NBA playoffs, number eight seeds had gone five and 69 in first round series against number one seeds since the NBA playoffs expanded to 16 teams beginning with the 1983-1984 season. So there is that. There is also this. No team has ever won an NBA playoff series after trailing in that series 3-0. The Wizards, of course, were down 3-0 after that debacle of a performance in Game 3 on Saturday night. A 132-103 loss to the Philadelphia 76ers at Capital One Arena. But a pulse remains off what went down on Monday night. The Wizards defeating the Sixers 122-114 at Capital One Arena 
to avoid a four-game sweep. I give the Wizards credit. They did not quit. They did not wilt because it looked like the Wizards may have quit and certainly wilted with what went down on Saturday night. The Wizards in game three got smashed for a second consecutive game in the series. The Wizards' largest lead in game three was a two-point lead in the first quarter. The Wizards never led in any of the final three quarters of game three. The Wizards in the fourth quarter never trailed by fewer than 19 points and trailed by as many as 31 points. But then came what happened on Monday night, the first win for the Wizards in an NBA playoff game since April 22nd, 2018. It had been more than three years since the Wizards had just won an NBA playoff game, period. Wizards in the 2018 NBA playoffs, as you may recall, lost to the Toronto Raptors in six games in the first round. Now, we really can't go and shouldn't go any further without making mention of the gift from the injury gods that we as Wizards fans received on Monday night. And that is what happened with the 76ers best player, Joel Embiid. He played for just 11 minutes, 24 seconds, did not play over the final three quarters due to right knee soreness. Embiid in the first quarter crashed to the floor off driving to the rim on Robin Lopez, did continue to play, but then did not play after the end of the first quarter. And it was kind of odd because Embiid looked like he may have injured his back or even his backside, but the 76ers announced him as having been ruled out for the rest of the game with right knee soreness. So what exactly we're dealing with here, we don't know. You know, right knee soreness is a very general way of describing things. But whatever the case, he did not play over the final three quarters, and the Wizards obviously benefited from this. The Wizards centers, at least two of them, went to work. Uh, Daniel Gafford, who started game four in a major lineup change for head coach Scott Brooks, had 12 points on 4-4 shooting, four rebounds, and five blocks in exactly 26 minutes as a starter. Gafford is so much fun to watch with the blocks, with the dunks. How about that monster two-handed putback slam that Gafford had off a missed three-point attempt by Bradley Beal for a 103-99 Wizards lead in the fourth quarter. Robin Lopez, who was so efficient, so productive for the Wizards off the bench in the regular season, had largely been silent in this series, was back to being efficient and productive in game four on Monday night. 16 points on 8 of 11 shooting, five rebounds and two blocks in 18-59 off the bench. So from Gafford and Lopez, you've got to combine 28 points on 12 of 15 shooting, nine rebounds and seven blocks Uh, The third head of the three-headed Wizards center monster, Alex Len, he barely played on Monday night. He played for just a minute 23 off the bench, but Gafford got his, Lopez got his, and of course, a good chunk of that had to do with Joel Embiid being out over the final three quarters. Now, Gafford had done some damage prior to game four, so it's not like Gafford was incapable of having success with Embiid on the floor. But, I mean, nobody's going to sit here and say that Joel Embiid not playing over the final three quarters wasn't a huge deal. It was a massive deal in Game 4 on Monday night. The Wizards ended up out-rebounding the 76ers by 9, 57-48. The Wizards, get this, outscored the 76ers after Embiid left the game for good, 95-85. This, in so many ways, was the game. Joel Embiid missing the final three quarters because go back to that game three loss on Saturday night. The Wizards were brutal defensively in that game. The Wizards got eviscerated by Joel Embiid in that game. Embiid in that game, three of four on threes, 11 of 14 on twos, five of seven on free throws. He finished with 36 points 
eight rebounds and three steals in just 27 minutes, 54 seconds as a starter. Len and Lopez did next to nothing in that game. They combined for just six points and two rebounds in a combined 25 minutes, 37 seconds of playing time. Gafford was good in game three on Saturday night. That's like I said, you know, it's not like Gafford had to have Embiid off the floor to do well. Gafford on Saturday night, 16 points, six of eight shooting, six rebounds, including five offensive boards in 22-23 off the bench. But game three in so many ways was the Embiid game. Uh, there was no Embiid for the final three quarters in game four on Monday night. I'll tell you something else that really benefited the Wizards on Monday night. Uh, that was how they handled Ben Simmons. Uh, a, the Wiz got Ben Simmons in a foul trouble. And B, the Wizards utilized Hacka Simmons late in the game and it worked beautifully. So Ben Simmons ended up playing for just 24 minutes, 31 seconds as a starter in game four. He finished with five fouls. Now he was productive in his time on the floor. Ben Simmons is a productive player. He can't make a three to save his life. He can't make a free throw to save his life, but he is a very good player. Ben Simmons, 13 points on four or five shooting, 12 rebounds and three assists versus one turnover in less than 25 minutes of playing time in game four. But he went just five of 11 on free throws, including four of eight on free throws in the fourth quarter. Hacka Simmons was in effect and it worked. The 76ers in the fourth quarter went just 9 of 15 on free throws. Simmons going 4 of 8 obviously had a lot to do with that. And the Wizards, conversely, for the most part, did a good job on their free throws. The Wizards in the fourth quarter went 12 of 16 on free throws. Bradley Beal and Russell Westbrook in the fourth quarter each went 5 of 6 on free throws. And I don't know about you, I don't take that for granted because Westbrook has not been a good free throw shooter so far this season. Another thing that really stood out from game four on Monday night was that the Wizards were good on threes for the first time since game one, and the Wizards defended the three well. The Wiz went nine of 24 on threes and held the 76ers to 12 of 38 on threes. How about Rui Hachimura? You know, you can always tweet me at Al Galdi. I got this tweet from a man, Edge, late on Monday night. Can we show Rui some love? He's growing on me. Hashtag Wizards win. Yes, you know, Rui Hachimura had not had a very good series so far. I know there are a lot of mixed opinions out there on Rui. I happen to like him. I think Rui Hachimura is a solid player. Yes, he's a low ceiling guy, but he's also a high floor guy. And he's not perfect, and he does have games in which he doesn't do much. I will grant you that. But by and large, Rui Hachimura to me is a hit of a first round pick. And Rui Hachimura was at his best in this series on Monday night. This was his best game easily over the first four games of the series. Hachimura went three of six on threes, finished with 20 points and 13 rebounds in 41 minutes, 32 seconds as a starter. That tells you a lot that he played for 41-32 on Monday night. How about Hachimura in the third quarter? So the Wizards won the third quarter 31-19. Hachimura in that third quarter, seven points on three of three shooting and five rebounds. And he had some swagger to his game in that third quarter. Hachimura with a good looking left-handed putback slam for a 77-72 Wizards lead in the third quarter. He actually got a technical foul for taunting after that slam. The mild-mannered, ultra-polite Rui Hachimura getting teed up in the third quarter for jaw-jacking somewhat, for getting in the Sixers' face to an extent in that third quarter on Monday night. I got a kick out of that. We're not used to seeing that from Rui Hachimura. Uh, he also nailed one of the big shots of the game, a big 24-foot three from the right side for a 118-112 Wizards lead with just under 46 seconds left in the fourth quarter. You know, Hachimura can shoot the three. He doesn't do so often, 
And I know his stats aren't necessarily great, but especially in this series, we've seen Rui Hachimura shoot the three well. And, you know, the Wizards overall have not shot the three well in the series. Hachimura's actually been an exception to that. He's actually shot the three well, and he certainly did well. Again, three of six on threes in game four on Monday night. Also, Davies Bertans. Yes, we had a Bertans sighting on Monday night. He shot the three well during his time in the game. Uh, so Bertans started for a second consecutive game. He went three of six on threes. He finished with 15 points and four rebounds, but he only ended up playing for 23 minutes, two seconds as a starter. He left the game in the second half due to a right calf strain. And that's concerning because that's an ailment that plagued Bertans in the regular season. As you likely know by now, Bertans had a very disappointing regular season, a very disappointing first season of that five-year, $80 million contract that he got re-signed to by the Wizards last offseason. But one of the things that was a factor in Bertans' disappointing regular season was injury. Uh, He was banged up a good bit. He dealt with a right calf strain, and a right calf strain was back to being an issue on Monday night. But Bertans, in a first quarter that the Wizards actually lost, 31-28, was very good. Two or three on three, scored 12 points. That's the Latvian laser that you want to see. Bertans can catch fire. We saw him do that so often last season. He's rarely done that this season. But the Latvian laser Bertans of the 2019-2020 season, that's the Davies Bertans we saw in that first quarter on Monday night. That was very encouraging. And then, of course, he ends up having to leave the game ultimately due to injury. I mentioned defending the three better. The Wizards did on Monday night. The Wiz helped three 76-year starters, Joel Embiid, Tobias Harris, and Seth Curry, to a combined one for 11 on threes. So good job when it came to shooting the three, defending the three. Now, the Wizards' two best players, Bradley Beal and Russell Westbrook, very mixed games for those guys in game four. That's actually one of the sneaky, encouraging things about game four. Like you think about it, yes, Joel Embiid getting injured had a lot to do with the Wizards winning the game, but the Wizards did lose one of their key players in Davies Bertans, and neither Beal nor Westbrook was great on Monday night. So Beal did go two of five on threes, but he went just seven of 18 on twos in a complete 180 from what we're used to with Bradley Beal this season. Beal for so much of the season, excellent on twos, bad on threes. Beal in game four on Monday night, very good on threes, but bad on twos. And he committed seven turnovers. Bradley Beal can be so sloppy with the basketball. We've seen that a lot the last few seasons. We saw it again on Monday night. However, Beal did finish with 27 points, four rebounds, four assists, and two blocks in 42 minutes, 51 seconds as a starter. Beal and that third quarter that the Wizards won, 32-19, very productive. Two of two on threes, scored 10 points. As for Westbrook, so he for a second consecutive game was a game-time decision due to a sprained right ankle. Westbrook had one of the more fascinating stat lines that you'll ever see. Three of 19 shooting. That's where you start. He went three of 19 from the field. This was vintage inefficient Russell Westbrook when it came to shooting on Monday night. 0 of 4 on threes, 3 of 15 on twos. I mean, Westbrook could not buy a bucket for so much of game four. But how about this when it came to shooting? He went 13 of 16 on free throws. The same Russell Westbrook who in the regular season shot just 65.6% on free throws, that Russell Westbrook went 13 of 16 on free throws on Monday night, and he finished with a triple-double. And listen to these numbers for the triple-double. 19 points, 21 rebounds, 
and 14 assists versus four turnovers to go with two steals in 42 minutes, 15 seconds as a starter. 19 points, 21 boards, and 14 assists. Westbrook became just the fourth player to have a triple-double that included at least 20 rebounds in an NBA playoff game since the NBA-ABA merger for the 1976-77 season. And the other three guys who did this, again, a playoff triple-double that included at least 20 rebounds, were bigs. Tim Duncan, Kevin Garnett, and Nikola Jokic. That is the thing about Westbrook maybe more than anything that impresses you. He is the best rebounding point guard in NBA history. And I don't even think that's a conversation. And that he joins that kind of company, Duncan, Garnett, and Jokic, in terms of guys who've had playoff triple doubles that include at least 20 rebounds, really impressive. So I don't know, was Monday night a great game for Westbrook? You can't say that. He went three and 19 shooting. At the same time, he did so many other things really well. Rebounded like a maniac, had 14 assists, did only have four turnovers. You can live with that with Westbrook. That's not a high turnover game, certainly by his standards. Did well at the free throw line, gave you a couple of steals. Like, yeah, I I don't know. If you're confused about Westbrook's game, I don't blame you. But that, in a lot of ways, is Russell Westbrook in a nutshell. And it's funny, since he suffered the sprained right ankle in game two, he's had his two best games of the series. Now, I know that's not saying a ton because he wasn't lights out in games one and two, but Russell Westbrook in the game three loss on Saturday night did play well offensively. Three of six on threes, six of 12 on twos, five of five on free throws, and he had a triple-double in that game. 26 points, 12 rebounds, 10 assists versus three turnovers in 34 minutes, 11 seconds as a starter. i tell you something else I really liked about the Wizards' win on Monday night. The game was played at the Wizards' pace. One of the big keys going into the series was who was going to dictate the pace, the Wizards or the 76ers. The Wizards in the regular season were number one in the NBA in pace, which is possessions per 48 minutes per NBA.com at 104.67. The Sixers in the regular season were 12th in the NBA in pace. The pace for game four on Monday night, again, possessions per 48 minutes per NBA.com was 109. The Wizards, again, led the NBA in the regular season in pace at 104.67. So this game was actually played at a faster pace than what the Wizards were accustomed to in the regular season. That's how the Wizards do their best work. There's no doubt about that. Play quick, play fast. The Wizards finished the game with 21 fast break points to the 76ers 7. So there was a lot to like with this game when it came to the Wizards. Again, so much of this had to do with Joel Embiid getting injured. I understand that. I'm not going nuts over that. This doesn't all of a sudden make me think that the Wizards are going to win the series. But it was nice to see the Wiz get a game in the series. And I will just say, if Joel Embiid misses time or even is just compromised moving forward, this series does change. I mean, the the landscape of the Eastern Conference this postseason changes if Embiid is affected moving forward. Now, again, the injury was labeled as right knee soreness. So I don't even know that there's concern of like a tear or anything like that. We'll see, like more to come. And it's also still kind of weird to me because like I said, it looked like he hurt his back, maybe even his rear end. And then the Sixers end up calling it right knee soreness. So there may be more to what Embiid is dealing with than we know, or there may be something different than what we've initially been told. We shall see. But for now, what we do know is Embiid did not play over the final three quarters of this game on Monday night, and his absence was felt. It was felt big time. Now, there's one other thing from game four that we have to get into here, and that is the incident. A fan running onto the court 
at Capital One Arena. So Ron Rivera was in attendance at Capital One Arena. Evgeny Kuznetsov was in attendance at Capital One Arena. Uh, neither guy ran onto the court. The fan who did this was somebody else. But in the third quarter, a fan ran onto the court, ended up being tackled. And yet another instance of unruly fan behavior in the 2021 NBA playoffs. This has been something else, huh? I mean, it feels like every night some fan is doing something in some game in the NBA playoffs, right? We had the fan dumping popcorn onto Russell Westbrook in game two of the series. You had the incident in the New York Knicks Atlanta Hawks first round series in which a fan spit on the Hawks Trey Young at Madison Square Garden in game two. And now we've had multiple other incidents in recent days, including, yes, a fan running onto the court at Capital One Arena on Monday night. Now, Monumental Sports and Entertainment did put out a statement via Twitter. The tweet said that the fan will, quote, be banned from the arena, end quote, and that charges are being pursued by the D.C. Metropolitan Police Department. I mean, you know, nobody was hurt or anything like that. But of course, that's not the point. You can't have this happening. And while some of this stuff is kind of silly, I mean, again, the dumping of popcorn on Russell Westbrook in game two at Philly wasn't that big of a deal. But you shouldn't be doing stuff like that, okay? It's not right to be doing stuff like that. And when you have people running onto the court, that takes it up a notch because you don't know what some lunatic is going to be doing as he runs onto the court. You don't know if he's got a weapon. You don't know if he's going to attack someone. You don't know what the guy is thinking. So this stuff has got to stop. I think it's interesting that we've had a bunch of these things happen lately. I don't know if this is about people finally being back in arenas and not knowing what to do with themselves. I don't know if this has something to do with people being angry at NBA players. We all know that NBA players have been very vocal over the last year when it comes to social justice and when it comes to politics. And maybe that's rubbing a lot of people the wrong way. I don't know. But it's hard to ignore this right now. What's happening? Like every night it feels like we're having stuff like this go down. I got to kick at a Bradley Beal's comments after the game. Take a listen. I don't want to use my hood slurring, but these hands work. Beal was trying to bow up here. He says, quote, these hands work. (laughs) I don't feel less safe because I know no fan would try me individually. You're not going to approach me and try something. I know that. End quote. So how about that? Bradley Beal is uh, Israel Adesanya all of a sudden, for those of you who are UFC fans. But it's a shame something like this happened, given what we've had at Capital One Arena over the two games there in this series. Increased capacity, right? DC approving Monumental Sports and Entertainment's request to increase capacity at Capital One Arena to 50%. So we've had more fans at Capital One Arena over games three and four in this series. And something like what happened on Monday night is what ends up happening. Now, it's an isolated incident in terms of things that have happened to Capital One Arena. I will grant you that. But again, you're wide in the lens, and this is happening a lot right now in the NBA playoffs. But whatever the case, the Wizards are alive. They will play at least one more game this season. Obviously, the task remains daunting. Obviously, you still can't consider the Wizards to be anything close to a favorite to win this series. But if Embiid is out or, again, at least compromised, this series does change in terms of how we view it. Game five at Philadelphia, Wednesday night at seven. As yes, there now is hope for the Wizards. A man who's in the business of offering hope is Dr. George Verghese, medical director for the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland. He's a board-certified dermatologist and Mohs surgeon. So the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland focuses on medical dermatology 
and skin cancer diagnosis and comprehensive care, including something very special and cutting edge, superficial radiation therapy or SRT. SRT is an alternative to surgical procedures for basal cell and squamous cell skin cancers. SRT is revolutionary. It's a non-surgical skin cancer treatment that's safe and effective. Having skin cancer doesn't mean having to have surgery and the downtime and side effects that go with surgery. You have options. Understand that a non-surgical option in SRT is available. Dr. George Verghese in the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland offer SRT unlike many other dermatology practices in the area and SRT is covered by most insurances. To find out more, call 301 396 3401. Make sure you tell them that Al Galdi sent you. That phone number again, 301-396-3401. Or visit midatlanticskin.com. That's midatlanticskin.com. Dr. George Verghese in the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland, nationally recognized for treating skin cancer across the Mid-Atlantic region. All right, so there really wasn't much Washington football team news over Memorial Day weekend. If you're wondering, did I miss something? Uh, the answer is no, not really. Uh, this week is week two of Washington's OTA practices this offseason. Just two weeks of OTA practices for Washington this offseason. Due to Ron Rivera, Don Ron, chopping off the final week of OTA practices and moving up the mandatory minicamp to next week, June 8th through the 10th. We did have this nugget on Monday. Came to us from Washington football team insider Ben Standing of the Athletic DC. He reported that left tackle Charles Leno Jr. is expected at this week's OTA practices per a person close to the situation. As remember, Leno was among the very few who were not at last week's OTA practices. And so I thought that this installment of the podcast would be a good chance to get into whether it matters if key players don't attend these, remember, voluntary OTA practices, specifically the two most prominent Washington players who were not at last week's OTA practices, Chase Young and Montez Sweat. So remember, Washington football team held its first batch of OTA practices this offseason last week. 86 players participated in the lone practice that was open to the media, that being Tuesday's practice. A tremendous display of attendance, especially given that the NFL Players Association this offseason has been openly pushing for boycotts of in-person workouts. So high was the attendance of Washington players at that initial batch of OTA practices last week that Washington, on Thursday, announced that the team's third week of OTA practices has been canceled and that that mandatory minicamp has been moved up to next week, June 8th through the 10th. This allows for players and also coaches to begin their break before the start of training camp a week earlier. So this was a reward to the Washington football team players for showing up in such a high number for that initial batch of OTA practices. There were, as best as we can tell, four players who missed all or part of Washington's first batch of OTA practices last week. Leno, uh, presumably because his wife recently gave birth. Receiver Steven Sims, who had what was reported as an excused absence, even though OTA practices are voluntary and thus an excuse isn't needed for missing an OTA practice, but whatever, that's how it was reported. It was an excused absence. And the two top edge rushers on the Washington football team, the two top sack masters, Chase Young and Montez Sweat. Now, Ron Rivera at his post-practice Zoom press conference last Tuesday didn't indicate that there were specific reasons for Young and Sweat 
not being there. Because you do wonder about that, right? Like, are there family issues? Are there personal reasons that these guys aren't there? Like, you never know. People have things going on. These guys do have lives. Uh, Ron did not indicate, though, that anything like that was in effect. He stressed that these OTA practices are, remember, voluntary, uh, and said that Young and Sweat will, quote, be here when they're here, end quote. Here's what Ron had to say last Tuesday at that post-practice Zoom press conference about Young and Sweat not being in attendance at that day's OTA practice. I know they've talked to their position coaches, and the thing that we stress is that it's voluntary. I mean, you'd love to have everybody here, you know, especially when, because, we, you know, we've got uh, 86 guys, I think it is, or 87 today, and you know, it'd be nice to have everybody, but I get it. And, and, and guys, you know, they're, they're entitled to do the things that they, they, they feel they need to do right now. Um, you know, they're both good, young, solid football players. And, uh, you know, the, the, the thing is that they'll be here when they're here. All right. So that was Ron last Tuesday. Washington football team insider Nikki Javala of the Washington Post on Friday reported that she had been told that Young and Sweat were working out on their own, had talked to their coaches about it, would be in attendance for the mandatory minicamp, and could be back for this week's second and final batch of OTA practices. So it may be that this ends up being a nothing story this week because Young and Sweat are back with the team. But I did want to get into a few things here about Young and Sweat not being at these OTA practices last week and how much something like this matters. Because this comes up every year at this time, right? Someone of some prominence for the Washington football team not being in attendance at the OTA practices. Does it matter? Does it not matter? Why is it there? What does this mean for the upcoming season, etc.? So I would start by saying this. Who does and doesn't attend OTA practices can be one of the most overrated things in an NFL team's offseason. Key players have missed OTA practices for years and have ended up being just fine. You know, this isn't the 1950s or even the 1980s. Most players train extensively away from their teams and come to training camps in great shape. And whatever actual meaningful football ground that is covered in OTA practices can more than be made up for by a player at his team's mandatory minicamp and then training camp. You know, Deshaun Jackson was famous for no-showing OTA practices during his time playing for Washington. Deshaun was here for three seasons, right? 2014 through 2016. Every offseason, it was a thing of Deshaun Jackson and he's not the OTA practices and what up with that? Uh, his time with Washington featured him having 2,000-yard receiving seasons in three years, featured him leading the NFL in yards per reception twice in three seasons, and the season in which he didn't do these things, 2015, featured him being a huge factor down the stretch of the team, rallying to win the NFC East. If you remember the specifics of that 2015 NFC East winning season for Washington, Deshaun missed a good chunk of time early that season due to a hamstring injury, but then over a six-game stretch, weeks 10 through 15, he averaged 20.6 yards on 23 receptions, including four touchdowns. Deshaun was not an angel during his time with Washington. There was not a halo over his head. He couldn't be a pain in the butt to deal with. Jay Gruden's talked about that. But Deshaun Jackson was a highly productive receiver for Washington over three seasons. He used to miss these OTA practices all the time and ended up not meeting much in terms of the actual production. So who does and doesn't attend these OTA practices can be very overrated. That said, it's not, nor has it ever been, that big of an ask to ask guys, most of whom essentially have seven-month off-seasons, right, January through July, to participate in the mere handful of OTA practices that teams have every May and June. Yes, the practices are voluntary. No, the practices don't make or break a player's or team's season. 
But, like, just think about it reasonably. What is so terrible about practicing with your teammates and getting a jump start on what's ahead with your unit and your team? Like, just because you don't have to do something doesn't mean that you shouldn't do that something. And I think about Washington's OTA practice attendance from this perspective. Terry McLaurin was at Washington's first batch of OTA practices last week. If Terry McLaurin can be there, it's not some unreasonable desire to want Chase Young and Montez Sweat to be there. So that's point number two. Point number three, there also is this issue of the culture change, right? When it comes to Washington, it's not just about this practice or that practice or this offseason or this oncoming season. It's also about this overarching theme of the culture. You know, the culture is actually damn good. Yes, Brucey, thank you very much. The culture and Ron Rivera trying to institute this much-needed culture change. I talked about this at length last week on the podcast. Washington having 86 players show up for the first OTA practice in a 2021 offseason in which the NFLPA has been openly pushing for boycotts of in-person workouts is a sign that the Ron Rivera culture change is taking effect. If you are Chase Young, if you are Montez Sweat, you are key players on the team, clearly. You are ultra-gifted players on the team, clearly. Why wouldn't you want to be a part of the culture change? Why wouldn't you want to be on board with something as cool and, I think, as significant as 80-plus players, nearly 90 players, showing up for the first batch of OTA practices? And it's not like Young and Sweat not being at the first batch of OTA practices means that Young and Sweat aren't a part of the culture change. I'm not trying to suggest that. But again, what would be so terrible about being there? Additionally, I do think things are a little different for Chase Young. Remember, Young ended his 2020 rookie season as a captain, and he deserved that. When he got handed that captaincy late in the season, nobody batted an eye. He was totally deserving of that. Remember the specifics of this. We found out shortly before Washington's 2013 loss to the Carolina Panthers at FedEx Field in Week 16 that Young had been given a captaincy that had been stripped from Dwayne Haskins due to Strippergate. So the captaincy went from one Buckeye to another. And as you may recall from that game, that Panthers game, that last stand for old Wayne Wayne as a Washington quarterback, you remember Dwayne gets benched, Taylor Heineke comes in, Dwayne during the fourth quarter in a very bizarre scene comes jogging onto the field to provide encouragement for Taylor Heineke with Heineke in the game as Washington's quarterback. And who was Dwayne following when he did this? Chase Young. And it was a strange deal, man. I'll never forget this. And look, maybe Dwayne was just trying to be a good teammate. But to me, and I know to a lot of you, it came off so phony. You know, it came off as Dwayne was simply following Chase Young, who was doing the exact same thing. It looked like, and you know, we don't know what was going through each guy's mind, but it looked like Chase Young initiated the action. Dwayne Haskins decided to follow Chase Young, and Dwayne was being a follower while Chase was being a leader. Chase came off as the genuine leader that Dwayne was not. But put that aside, all right, because this is not about Haskins. Anyway, Chase Young was a captain. You know, it's not common, right, that a rookie gets given a captaincy late in a season, but that's what went down last season, and Chase deserved that. Well, if Chase Young has designs on serving as a Washington captain again in the 2021 season, uh, why not show up for OTA practices? 
I'm not mad at Chase Young and Montez Sweat for no showing. This is what you call a nuanced take, okay? This isn't like kill Chase Young and Montez Sweat for no showing. This is also, though, not, eh, who cares? It doesn't mean anything, you know? Let them do as they want to do. Let me know when week one comes. Like, no, I think there is a middle ground on something like this. And the middle ground to me is, it would be nice if Chase Young and Montez Sweat were there. I'm not all worked up about them not being there, but I would be interested to know why they weren't there. Like, what compelled you to not want to show up to something like this? Again, Terry McLaurin was there. John Allen was there. Deron Payne was there. Kendall Fuller was there. What would be so terrible if you were there? So that's all. It's just, it's, it's a question I know I as a fan and as an observer of the team am asking. But am I like really worried about Chase Young and Montez Sweat not fitting into the culture change? No, I'm not. Am I worried about Chase Young and Montez Sweat not being good this upcoming season? No, I'm not. I'm actually very excited to see what these guys do in year two of the Ron Rivera, Jack Del Rio, Washington football team defense. And speaking of Jack, by the way, he will be speaking this week at Washington football team OTA practices. The Zoom press conference schedule is as follows. So the open to the media practice for this week will be Wednesday's practice. Ron Rivera will speak after that practice. And also speaking after that practice will be Jack Del Rio. And then on Thursday, the practice is closed to the media, but Scott Turner will be speaking after that practice. So we this week, we'll be hearing from Don Ron, Jack, and Scott, uh, all coming up this week. So a busy week on the podcast when it comes to talking Washington football team. You tell me what you think, though, about Chase Young and Montez Sweat not showing up at OTA practices. Again, it's not about making a big deal out of this. I always get a kick out of the people who, whenever you talk about who's showing up at OTA practices, are like, hey, don't you guys have anything better to talk about in the offseason? And it's like, well, actually, no, in some ways we don't. But there is a middle ground on this stuff. Acknowledging these guys not being there and wondering about why they're not there isn't crushing the guys. It's asking a few questions about the guys. And especially in this situation with this team, and like I talked about the culture change, I think these are questions worth asking. You tell me what you think. Hit me up on Twitter at Al Galdi. You can email me the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. All right, guys, if you love listening to me on the Al Galdi podcast, what's stopping you from grabbing a mic and starting your own show? And there's no better place to host than Blue Wire Hustle. Hustle was created to give everyone the opportunity to take your podcast to the next level. Or if you want to host a podcast and just don't know where to start, Hustle is the perfect place for you. As part of the program, you'll receive personal cover art, Q&As with Blue Wire's top podcasters, access to our community Discord, and an e-learning course full of tips and tricks. And on top of all that, we'll help you get your show pushed out to Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, and all other listening platforms. And We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. 
And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The best part is you can get all of this for just $15 a month, the same rate as any other hosting site would charge you just for the initial setup. So if you're ready to do more than just listening to me talk about D.C. area sports, then make your voice heard in Hustle. Acceptance into the program is limited, so get your application in today. To apply, go to bwhustle.com slash join. Check out the description box in this episode to find out more. That's bwhustle.com slash join. All right, guys, look, no one's perfect. Even the best baseball players strike out with the bases loaded. The best golfers sometimes three-putt with the tournament on the line. So if you feel like you come up short in the bedroom sometimes, it's perfectly okay. But if it's bothering you, there are options. Go to GetRoman.com slash AlGaldi now. With Roman, you can get a free online evaluation and ongoing care for ED, all from the comfort and privacy of your home. A U.S. licensed healthcare professional will work with you to find the best treatment plan. If medication is appropriate, it ships to you free with two-day shipping. The whole process is straightforward and discreet. Getting started is simple. Just go to GetRoman.com slash AlGaldi and complete an online visit. Take care of your ED without leaving home. Complete an online visit today to connect with a doctor and take care of it. Go to GetRoman.com slash AlGaldi now to get $15 off your first month. Look, there's a straightforward way to take care of your ED. GetRoman.com slash AlGaldi. Get started now to save $15 on your first month of treatment. Well, you can always email me, the AlGaldi podcast at Yahoo.com. I got this email from Tom. He writes, Al, it's fork time for the Nationals. Well, Tom, I'm not sure we're quite there yet. But it does feel like we're getting closer to that now, doesn't it? 50 games into the 162-game season, the Nats are 21-29 and over their first 50 games of this season. The record through 50 games in the 2019 World Series winning season was 19-31. and The Nats through 50 games this season are 21-29. and We'll see if we look back upon 21-29 and the same way we look back upon 19-31. and But the bottom line is, right now, The Nationals are reeling. Five consecutive losses. The team has scored a total of six runs over those five consecutive losses. Latest loss, a 5-3 loss at the Atlanta Braves on Monday in game one of a big four-game series. This off what happened on Saturday and Sunday, a three-game sweep to the Milwaukee Brewers at Nationals Park. 4-1, seven-inning loss on Saturday afternoon in game one of a doubleheader. 6-2, seven-inning loss on Saturday night in game two of a doubleheader. 3 nothing loss on Sunday afternoon. The Nats, in getting swept in three games by the Brewers over those two days, wrapped up a 4-5 and five homestand. A homestand that was supposed to be one on which the Nats got fat and happy. Nats were facing the Orioles over three games, the Cincinnati Reds over three games, and the Milwaukee Brewers over three games. Not exactly a murder's row. The Nats began the homestand with a three-game sweep of the Orioles. But the Nats end up losing five of six games against the Reds and Brewers and only end up going four and five on a homestand that was ripe, that was begging 
for the Nats to go six and three or better. That's what I said. I said the Nats need to go six and three or better on the homestand. The Nats end up going just four and five. There is no mystery as to what the Nationals' biggest problem is right now. It is the offense. The offense is dreadful. The Nats don't score runs, period. The lineup lacks length. The roster lacks depth. The farm system is barren. And all of this is happening with the Nats having been mostly healthy. Now, not entirely healthy. I know some guys have missed some time. Juan Soto missed some time. Victor Robles has just come back off missing some time. But by and large, the Nats have been a pretty healthy team this season. You know, yes, you had the COVID-19 absences to begin the season. But, you know, you look around baseball, plenty of teams have dealt with far worse in terms of injuries so far this season. And yet the Nats still have not been able to pile up runs with any kind of consistency. The Nats in this 5-3 loss at the Braves on Monday totaled just seven hits, a homer, and six singles, totaled just three walks, struck out 10 times. The Nats did not have another hit after Jan Gomes' first pitch leadoff infield single in the top of the sixth. That was it. The Nats actually got to the Braves starter, Charlie Morton. He ended up allowing three runs and five innings on six hits and three walks, but the Nats got completely shut down by the Braves bullpen. Four Braves relievers, Luke Jackson, A.J. Minter, Chris Martin, and Will Smith combined for four scoreless innings on four strikeouts versus one hit and no walks. And you go back to that three-game sweep to the Brewers at Nationals Park. The Nats offense was horrendous. I don't know what was worse over the weekend. The weather in the D.C. area, especially on Saturday and Sunday, or the Nationals offense over Saturday and Sunday, because the Nats could not buy a run or a hit in this series against the Brewers. The 4-1 7-inning loss on Saturday afternoon. The Nats in that game, just four hits into walk, 0-for-1 with runners in scoring position. The 6-2 7-inning loss on Saturday night. The Nats in that game did have eight hits and four walks, but seven of the eight hits were singles. Nats went 1-for-9 with runners in scoring position. And by the way, fell to 0-5 in seven inning games on the season. Nats have not done well in the seven inning game so far this year. And then in the 3 nothing loss to the Brewers on Sunday afternoon, the lone nine inning game in the series, the Nats had just three hits, all of which were singles, worked three walks, struck out 12 times, went 0-for-2 with runners in scoring position, got completely dominated by the Brewers ace Brandon Woodruff, who tossed seven scoreless innings, with 10 strikeouts. That was the game in which you had the marquee pitching matchup, Woodruff versus Max Scherzer. And Max was good. It's not like Max didn't do a good job. Maybe he wasn't lights out the way Woodruff was, but Max in the game, two runs and six innings, 10 strikeouts, only gave up two hits, a homer and a single, only issued one walk, but he wasn't perfect. And when you're not perfect these days as a national starting pitcher, more likely than not, you end up losing. I mean, understand this about Max Scherzer's season. He's pitching at a Cy Young level. Max Scherzer over 11 starts has an ERA at 234. That's great. Has a whip of 0.82. That's great. Has a strikeouts versus walks ratio of 95 to 14. That's great. And yet Max Scherzer's record on the season is just four and four. And if you know me, you know, I could not care less about pitchers one loss records, but I bring that up here to illustrate a how faulty it is to go by pitchers' one-loss records when judging the types of seasons pitchers are having. But B, look at Max Scherzer. He's pitching like a guy who should be, you know, seven and one over eight decisions. And instead, he's four and four. Why? Because the Nats don't score runs, in particular, it seems, whenever he starts. You know, I think about Davey Martinez, and he right now 
is seemingly closing his eyes when it comes to putting together his lineups here. Every game, the lineup is something different. Every game, Davey is trying something different and nothing sticks. Nothing works, okay? Davey again restructured his lineup for Monday. That accomplished nothing. Yet Trey Turner back as a number one batter. He had one of his worst games of the season, 0 for 5 with four strikeouts. Josh Harrison was a starting second baseman back as a number two batter. He went one for four. He had a one-out single in the top of the first. Juan Soto, who had been the leadoff batter for the game on Sunday, was back to being the number three batter for the game on Monday. He got on base, but he continued to hit for no power. One for two with a single and two walks. He had a one-out five-pitch walk in the top of the first, a leadoff full count walk in the Nats three-run fourth, and a one-out single in the top of the fifth. The biggest bright spot was Josh Bell, the Nats cleanup batter, who's been a lot better lately. You know, he was not good in the three-game sweep to the Brewers. That's true. 0 for 7 with a walk and three strikeouts in the series. But Bell on Monday provided the Nats lone extra base hit, and it was a homer, a two-run homer on an 0-2 pitch in the Nationals' three-run fourth inning. Bell has actually been very productive this season on 0-2 pitches, believe it or not. So Josh Bell's climb out of the deep, deep slump that began his season does continue. So that is nice to see. But beyond that, I mean, just not much happening. You know, Kyle Schwarber, number five batter, one for four with a single and a strikeout. Starling Castro, number six batter, 0 for three with a walk and a strikeout. Jan Gomes, number seven batter, two for four with two singles. Okay. Uh, Andrew Stevenson, number eight batter, 0 for two with a strikeout. Going back to Soto, uh, that three-game sweep to the Brewers was a low point for Juan Soto, and hopefully it is the low point for him. And what really is essentially the first prolonged slump of his major league career. Now, there's some nuance to that because Soto is getting on base. He is drawing walks, and he is more or less hitting for a decent average here. But the slugging percentage has plummeted. Juan Soto came off the 10-day injured list on May 4th. He'd been on that since April 20th with the left shoulder strain. Since Juan Soto came off the 10-day IL, here are his slash line numbers. Batting average of 253. On base percentage of 387, slugging percentage of 345. Since he came off the IL, his on base percentage is 42 points higher than his slugging percentage. It's not supposed to work that way, and yet it has with Juan Soto. He's not elevating balls. He's putting way too many balls on the ground. He's not hitting for power. He is drawing some walks. That's true. But Juan Soto has become a singles hitter and a guy who draws walks. You know, that's good for most other people. That's not good enough for Juan Soto. Juan Soto should be always slugging in the 500s. And instead, since he came off the 10-day IL again, he's slugging 345. That is a big-time problem right now when it comes to the Nationals' struggling offense. He's having some bad plate appearances, too. You know, you go back to that 4-1-7 inning loss to the Brewers at Nationals Park on Saturday afternoon in game one of the doubleheader sweep. Soto in that game, 0 for 3, grounded into an inning-ending double play, 4-6-3, bottom of the third, after which he slammed his helmet into the dirt behind first base. He is wearing his frustrations right now. You go back to the 3 nothing loss to the Brewers at Nats Park on Sunday afternoon. Juan Soto in that game, bottom of the six, strikes out on six pitches, despite having been ahead of the count at one point, 2-0. All three strikes were called strikes. Now, in fairness to Juan, the first and second strikes were outside of the strike zone, were part of a very liberal strike zone that was employed by the home plate umpire, Sam Holbrook. Soto, after the second called strike, threw his hands up in disgust, and that's hitting coach Kevin Long, who, by the way, has got to be feeling the pressure right now, argued the balls and strikes, ended up being ejected. But the point is, Juan Soto, after that, ended up taking a legitimate called strike three. It looked like he gave up 
on the plate appearance. He's having some really bad plate appearances right now. We're not used to seeing this with Juan Soto. You know, he had a meek first pitch ground out with a runner on first two out spot in the eighth and that loss on Sunday. Don't like a lot of what we're seeing from Juan Soto. And ultimately, the national struggling offense does come back to the roster. You know, I, I, I don't love everything that Davey Martinez is doing. Okay, the constant changing of the lineups I could do without. Davies had this fixation with Victor Robles batting at the number nine spot behind the starting pitcher. I can't stand that. But this is a flawed roster. This is just not a very good offensive team. The Nats are having to lean on people who shouldn't be leaned on, at least not so much. I mean, everyone likes Josh Harrison. He's not a number two hitter. Starling Castro is not a number five hitter. You know, the Nats, over the course of the three games through to the Brewers, started Jordy Mercer twice. Jordy Mercer on the season is batting 213. He has an on-base percentage of 229. He has a slugging percentage of 255, okay? I mean, I got nothing personal against Jordy Mercer. I know he's a versatile player, but he should not be starting two games for you over the course of three games. That's not the way that should work. He is an automatic out. And yet he was out there in back-to-back games, in fact, over the course of that three-game sweep to the Brewers. Like I said, Robles is back, so that's good news. And that's on Monday, returned him from his rehab assignment and activated him off the 10-day injured list. He'd been on that since May 23rd, retroactive to May 20th due to a sprained right ankle. Uh, Robles being activated was the corresponding roster move to the Nats on Sunday, optioning Luis Garcia to AAA Rochester. We did see Robles in a pinch hitting role in the loss at Atlanta on Monday. He had a pinch leadoff fly out to right field in the top of the ninth inning. Now, Joe Ross was an ad starting pitcher in the 5-3 loss at the Braves on Monday. And this was such an interesting outing to me. This outing to me was the perfect microcosm for the career of Joe Ross. You know, Joe Ross at times has looked great. Joe Ross at times has looked awful. Joe Ross this season at times has looked great. At times has looked awful. Joe Ross in this game looked great and looked awful. He started off in a terrible way. Joe Ross allowed four runs in five innings. He allowed the four runs over his first inning and a third, and then he was dominant. Joe Ross, over his final three and two-thirds innings, retired all 11 batters who he faced and recorded six strikeouts. He finished with seven strikeouts over the five innings, and he had another hit, by the way. Joe Ross has been a very good batter so far this year. Two-out RBI single on a 1-2 pitch, and then adds three-run fourth. But Joe Ross was a mess in the bottom of the first inning, during which he gave up three runs. Leadoff single by Ronald Acuna Jr. on an 0-2 pitch. Five-pitch walk of Freddie Freeman. Full-count walk of Ozzie Albies, despite him having been down in the count at 1.02. A one-out RBI sack fly by Dansby Swanson on a 1-2 pitch. A two-out five-pitch walk of Abraham Almonte. And a two-out two-run single by William Contreras on an 0-2 pitch. What'd you hear there, right? A lot in the way of 0-2 pitches. We're down at 1.02. 1-2 pitch. Ross could not put anyone away to save his life in that bottom of the first inning. Braves end up scoring three runs. Ross gave up another run in the bottom of the second on a one-out solo homer by Ronald Acuna Jr. And then everything changed. Joe Ross became Walter Johnson. Joe Ross became lights out as the rest of his outing went on. Now, he only ended up going for the five innings. Davey Martinez ended up pinch hitting for Joe Ross. I thought rightly so. I mean, to me, with a guy like Ross, you get out while they're getting still good. But it just was one of these outings where you're like, I don't know what to think of Joe Ross. And this has been a season in which you say, I don't know what to think about Joe Ross. At times, he has been really bad. But at other times, he's actually been quite good. Now, the bottom line numbers are not good. 10 starts now for Joe Ross on the season. ERA of 540, whip of 141. We've been having the conversation about, well, is Eric Fetty going to replace Joe Ross in the rotation? 
Sounds like we're still not there yet in terms of Eric Fetty being activated off the COVID-19 injured list. So Ross, for now, is safe in the rotation. And I'm not sure that this outing on Monday does that much damage to his status in the rotation. Again, he looked really good as the game went on. But of course, you can't just erase what happened early in the game. For the Nats to be put into a hole like they were, down 3 nothing at the end of the first inning, bad. Down 4 nothing at the end of the second inning, bad. And especially with the way the Nats offense is right now, 4 nothing felt like 12 nothing. I mean, that's just the way that it is right now. You just have no faith in the Nationals putting up a bunch of runs in any given game. Uh, the Nats bullpen on Monday, three relievers end up being utilized. One run in three innings is what is allowed. Kyle Finnegan was the culprit. He gave up a run in the bottom of the sixth, although things could have been a lot worse. Finnegan, he was scuffling in this inning and then actually got better, but he gave up a one-out first pitch single to Dansby Swanson, a two-out first pitch single to William Contreras, a two-out RBI single by Guillermo Heredia on a one-two pitch, and then Finnegan issued a two-out walk of pinch hitter A. Ray Adrianza in a 10-pitch plate appearance, but Finnegan ended up minimizing the damage. So like I said, it could have been a lot worse than it ended up being. What was so funny about that inning was, you know, Finnegan does not look well. He's having a hard time throwing strikes, hard time putting guys away. And then what does Finnegan end up doing to end the inning? He strikes out the Braves' best hitter, Ronald Acuna Jr., albeit on eight pitches. But he had Acuna down 0-2, you know, so like that's the guy who ends up making the third out, you know, go figure. But anyway, Finnegan gives up the run in the bottom of the sixth. Sam Clay did toss a perfect bottom of the seventh. Tanner Rainey, who needed a good outing, delivered a good outing, tossed a scoreless bottom of the eighth with a couple of strikeouts. Look, the Nats bullpen has come back down to earth. The Nats bullpen has been giving up runs here lately. I've been mentioning this. You know, you go back to the three-game sweep to the Brewers at Nationals Park, that uh, 6-2, 7-inning loss to the Brewers on Saturday night. Four Nats relievers in that game combined to allow five runs in three innings. Daniel Hudson, three runs in an inning and a third. Sam Clay had issues, officially allowed a run in the Brewers, four runs, six, but he was worse than that. He entered the game with a runner on second, two outs, gave up a two-out four-pitch walk. Kristen Yelich, two-out ribby single by Colton Wong on an 0-2 pitch, two-out RBI double by Willie Adamas. So bullpen problems in that game. You go back to the 3 nothing loss to the Brewers on Sunday afternoon. Three Nats relievers combined to give up a run in three innings in that game. Austin Voth gave up a run in the top of the ninth on a one-out solo homer by Omar Narvaez. Uh, that outing, by the way, marking a fourth time in six appearances in which Voth gave up a homer. So Austin Voth has come back down to earth. Here's the deal, though. Like, the bullpen, I mean, it was really good for a while. It hasn't been very good lately, but it wasn't going to continue to be lights out. Like, bullpens give up runs. That's how things go. Most relievers are failed starters. They're not perfect. You got to be able to score runs. You got to be able to score more than, you know, two, three runs a game. Nats are not able to do that right now. One more thing regarding the Nats bullpen, and this is bad news, and actually, in a lot of ways, it's sad news. Uh, Will Harris, it turns out, does have thoracic outlet syndrome and is almost certainly done for the season. David Martinez announced this on Sunday morning. So the timeline here, Will Harris on March 13th felt numbness in his fingers while throwing in a B game at National Spring Training. March 19th, we were told that Harris had been diagnosed with a blood clot in his right arm. March 26th, we were told that a procedure on Harris had revealed that he did not have a blood clot in his right arm, nor the more serious thoracic outlet syndrome. But Harris ended up not making his 2021 regular season debut until May 4th. He missed the Nats' first 24 games due to right-hand inflammation. He allowed six runs in six innings over eight games. And then the Nats on May 23rd put Harris on the 10-day injured list with right-hand inflammation. And now it has been decided that he does have thoracic outlet syndrome, was set to undergo surgery. This is a free agent signing that has not worked out. Nats in January 2020 
signed Harris to a three-year, $24 million contract. This is a guy who's been a very consistent reliever for the Houston Astros. You know, there aren't many relievers who are good season in, season out. Harris had been good season in, season out over a stretch of five years for the Astros, 2015 through 2019. Will Harris, in fact, in the 2019 regular season was number one among all qualified American League relievers in ERA at 150. Nats game, a three-year, $24 million contract. He had a very mixed first season with the Nats in 2020, and now he's had a lost 2021. And who knows if he's ever the same again? You know, thoracic outlet syndrome for pitchers is a very serious deal. Tommy John is one thing. Thoracic outlet syndrome is worse. Like, if you look at somebody like Matt Harvey, what has wrecked Matt Harvey's career isn't the Tommy John surgery that he underwent. He came back from that, had a good 2015 season after that. It's a thoracic outlet syndrome that he had to deal with in 2016. So, you know, I hope like Heck Harris is back to pitching effectively, but I don't think you can count on that, especially for a guy who is well into his 30s. Well, game two for the Nationals at the Braves Tuesday night at 720. Steven Strasburg versus Max Freed. You know, here we go again with this Nationals offense. Freed does not have overall good numbers on the season, but he's been much better lately. Had a 150 ERA over four starts in May. When it comes to Strasburg, we're still trying to figure out what kind of a season the guy's going to have. I mean, you know, he just came off the 10-day injured list on May 21st. He's made a couple of starts. He tossed five and a third scoreless innings in a 4-2 win over the Orioles at Nationals Park on May 21st. He then, in his next outing, his second outing since coming off the IL, three runs in five innings in that 3 nothing seven-inning loss to the Cincinnati Reds at Nationals Park last Thursday night. That was kind of a weird outing for Strasburg. He got babbipped to a degree, had some unlucky hits that he gave up in a two-run top of the fifth inning. But Strasburg also has not been throwing strikes like you want him to. In that initial game back against the Orioles, Strasburg threw just 39 of his 72 pitches for strikes. In this most recent outing, the game against the Red Strasburg threw just 49 strikes versus 38 balls on 87 pitches. But look, Strasburg can do great. If the Nats don't hit, the Nats aren't going to win. The bats have got to get going somehow, some way. There isn't some obvious easy fix. It's on those already on the roster to be better. Hopefully, we start seeing that come Tuesday night. Well, the losing continues for the Orioles. My, oh my, what a run they are on. 14 consecutive losses, 2-21 and 21 since the 15-16 and 16 start. You know, it was that John Means no-hitter in the 6 nothing win at the Seattle Mariners on May 5th that got the O's to 15-16. and 16. Since that game, since that glorious day, the Orioles have lost 21 of 23 games. The latest loss, a 3-2, 10-inning loss to the Minnesota Twins at Oriole Park at Camden Yards on Monday afternoon in Game 1 of a three-game series. The 14-game losing streak is tied for the franchise's second-longest losing streak since moving to Baltimore to begin the 1954 season. The longest losing streak for the franchise since moving to Baltimore was that 21-game losing streak that began the Orioles' 1988 season. Yes, this is the franchise's longest losing streak since that 0-21 start to the 1988 season. You can always email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. I got this email from Daryl Grove. He writes, I don't share your optimism on the Orioles. This should have been the year for improvement, and they're the worst team in baseball. The good news, they're bad in all aspects. Pitching, hitting, and fielding. Okay, fielding is okay. Oh, add base running. 
While the change was needed, they're shortchanging fans going on four years now, and 21, they have regressed from 20. The coaching on the field leaves a lot to be desired. I could give you examples, but you watch the games. And off the field, unfortunately, they are now proving to be the cheapest team in baseball. Masson is horrible. Only kept Jim Palmer this year. Thank goodness, though, as he is still really good. Oh, and for health and safety reasons, they no longer allow outside food or beverage in the ballpark. Now, I didn't know about that. That's interesting. And that's a bad job if that's true. Uh, continues, Daryl. Of course, it has nothing to do with health and safety. It has to do with running an organization on the cheap and reaching further into the fans' pockets and the small vendors who used to sell you peanuts into water at a reasonable price before you went inside and paid for overpriced beer and food, which I always do, but advertisements regarding the changes were BS. I've been a fan, O's and Skins, since the mid-1960s. Not bad for only being 39. This is a sad state of affairs right now, and if they only have one or two good years in the next decade, this rebuild will have been a failure. It better be a really good stretch of baseball for years, and it better be soon, or clean house again and find people that have a clue. Seriously. Daryl, I hear you, my friend. I hear your anger. I do. The losing is constant. The losing is painful, but the losing is part of the plan. I have been very consistent with this. The Orioles are tanking. They are in the midst of a total overhaul. Why? Because they were in dire need of a total overhaul. The farm system was an embarrassment. The complete ignoring of the Latin American market was shameful. The ineptitude when it came to analytics was an outrage. The success under Buck Showalter and Dan Duquette was a house of cards that came tumbling down. Major systemic changes needed to be enacted, and they have been. And unfortunately, before the pleasure comes the pain. That's how a rebuild works. And right now, we are in the midst of the pain. And the pain is deep, and the pain is lasting. And listen, I will concede this. There is no guarantee that the pain will lead to the pleasure, okay? You can do a total teardown rebuild and the rebuild never ends up leading to anything of consequence. That's true. That's the risk you take when you do something like this, but something like this needed to happen. My best advice to you, if you're an Orioles fan is, as hard as it may be, don't be invested in wins and losses this season. I know that sounds odd, but don't get caught up in wins and losses. Get caught up in how individual players are doing. That's the way I look at this season just like that was the way to look at the last two seasons. But divorce yourself from caring about winning and losing and focus on individual players, young players, potential building blocks for the future and try to see, okay, is this guy doing well? Is that guy doing well? Can we be excited about this guy? Should we be excited about that guy? That to me is the prism through which to watch the Orioles in 2021. Because if you're going to get caught up in wins and losses, then forget about it. You're going to drive yourself nuts. This is a really bad team, but this is a tanking team. The front office did not put any real resources into trying to make this season's team good. This isn't supposed to be a good team this season. Now, specific to the ongoing 14-game losing streak, at least lately, the losing streak is all about the offense. The Orioles' offense has been horrendous. That 3-2 inning loss to the Twins at Camden Yards on Monday afternoon The O's in that game had just six hits into walk, went one for eight with runners in scoring position. Although there was a moment that is impossible to forget if you saw it. So among the Orioles hits was a one out solo homer by Ryan Mountcastle to center field in the bottom of the fifth. It was on the homer that the twin center fielder Rob Refsnyder, while running back toward the center field wall, didn't realize that he was nearing the center field wall 
and ultimately crashed into the center field wall without ever looking at the center field wall. Now, it looks like he's okay. I mean, it's not funny if the guy gets hurt, but it was pretty funny to see. He's not looking at the wall. He keeps running and running, and he obviously lost track of where he was, even though he stepped onto the warning track, which is supposed to, yes, warn you that the wall is coming. And instead, he just kept going, and he went smack right into that outfield wall. Uh, it looked like you were watching a cartoon. Anyway, I got a kick out of that. Uh, but whatever, man. The offense has been atrocious for the Orioles here lately. You go back to the Orioles' previous series, that four-game sweep at the Chicago White Sox. 5-1 loss on Thursday night. Doubleheader sweep on Saturday. 7-4, seven-inning loss in game one. 3-1, seven-inning loss in game two. And then the 3-1 loss on Sunday afternoon. The O's over the four-game sweep totaled seven runs, went 20 for 115 overall with eight walks. And how about this? Went 0 for 24 with runners in scoring position. Yes, 0 for 24 with runners in scoring position is what the O's win over the four-game sweep at the White Sox. What's funny about the ongoing 14-game losing streak is, at least lately, the Orioles starting pitching actually has been pretty good. The O's are actually pitching fairly well from a starting pitching standpoint here lately. Uh, Jorge Lopez and the 3-2 tenanting loss of the Twins at Camden Yards on Monday afternoon was good. And he's actually on a nice little run here. Last three starts, he's been pretty good. Uh, Lopez on Monday afternoon, one run in six innings, seven strikeouts. You like that? He only gave up five hits, a double and four singles, issued two walks, did issue a balk, but he threw 60 strikes versus 30 balls. And like I said, he's been better lately here. So this is the kind of thing you want to be tracking. Guy like Jorge Lopez has been better over his last three starts. You go back to his previous outing, the 3-2 loss at the Twins last Wednesday afternoon. Lopez in that game, three runs in six innings. Okay, that's not great, but he tossed five scoreless innings, then did struggle the third time through the Twins lineup, gave up a two-out, three-run homer to Miguel Sano to dead center in the bottom of the six. But his outing prior to that one, that 4-2 loss at the Nationals on May 21st, Lopez in that game, two runs in five innings, eight strikeouts. Here's a guy who had been reeling. He came into that game against the Nationals, Lopez did, with an ERA of 635 over eight starts this season. Last three starts better. You're seeing improvements. Like, that's the kind of thing you want to be sinking your teeth into. How about Keegan Aiken in the game on Sunday afternoon, the 3-1 loss at the White Sox. Aiken making his first major league start of the season was good. One run, four and two-thirds innings, four strikeouts versus five hits, a homer and four singles and two walks. He threw 60 strikes versus 34 balls on 94 pitches. Remember the deal with Aiken, the O's on March 26th optioned him to Triple A Norfolk, uh, despite him having been viewed as a likely guy to make the season opening rotation. But Aiken was really bad during the exhibition season. He gets recalled from Triple A Norfolk on May 10th. He's been utilized in relief. He makes the start on Sunday afternoon. Did a halfway decent job. Keegan Aiken is a young arm that you want to see do well. Second round selection in the 2016 draft. He's in just his age 26 season. And Bruce Zimmerman was good in that game one loss at the White Sox. Last Thursday night, the 5-1 loss. Zimmerman in that game, one run in five innings on six strikeouts. What's funny is John Means actually was not among those pitchers who did well in that White Sox series. He was iffy in game three of the series. Actually, was iffy for a second time in three starts. Means in the 3-1 seven-inning loss at the White Sox in game two, the doubleheader sweep on Saturday, three runs in five innings. And Matt Harvey did struggle again in that series at the White Sox. He got rocked in game two, the 7-4 seven-inning loss at the White Sox in game one of the doubleheader sweep on Saturday. Bad was Harvey for a fourth consecutive start. Five runs in three innings. Did record six strikeouts, but he was all over the place. He gave up five hits, a homer, a double, three singles, issued three walks, threw a wild pitch. Matt Harvey now, over his last four starts, has allowed 23 earned runs in 13 
and two-thirds innings. He had been a nice story over his first seven starts. He had an ERA at 360. Surprisingly, was the Orioles' number two starter to begin the season. You know, interesting reclamation project. Maybe someone who, as I have said, you could fix and then flip. Uh, right now, uh, nobody's fixing Matt Harvey. He is in a bad spot. Again, 23 earned runs allowed in 13 and two-thirds innings over his previous four starts. And I'm not sure how much longer you can go with Matt Harvey in the rotation. It's one thing if a young guy like a Keegan Aiken or a Dean Kramer is struggling. A guy like Matt Harvey, I mean, he's here to be fixed and then flipped. If you if there, if there ain't no fixing him, then there ain't no flipping him. And if there ain't no flipping him, there's no point in him being here. He's not going to be with the team when the team gets good again. So I'm not sure how much more time the Orioles realistically should be devoting to fixing Matt Harvey. But yes, 14-game losing streak. It's not fun. Nobody's saying that it is. But just keep saying this to yourself if you were a suffering Orioles fan right now. Pain now, pleasure later. Pain now, pleasure later. That better be the case. Otherwise, we're all in trouble. Game two at the Twins, Tuesday night at 7.05. Bruce Zimmerman versus Michael Pineda. All right, that will do it for you and me for now. It is a short work week, but it will be a busy work week. Week two of OTA practices for the Washington football team. The Wizards remain alive in their first round series with the Philadelphia 76ers in the NBA playoffs. And the Nationals and Orioles are spiraling downward right now. Here's a question. If the Nats played the O's right now, would either team score a run? I'm not sure. Uh, Nats and those are back in action on Tuesday night. Anyway, lots more on all of this on Wednesday's installment of the podcast. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Have a great rest of your Tuesday. I'll talk to you on Wednesday. I don't want to use my hood slurm, but these hands work. <laughs>